Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Now for our sermon text this morning is found in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Our pastor will soon be sharing with you these words. There are 16 verses we want to call to your attention this morning. The writer, the Apostle Paul said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions in earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far all into heaven that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the saints, the shepherds, the teachers, that they can equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of and carried about in every wind of doctrine by human crafting, cunning, or craftiness. And in that craftiness, there is deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together 
by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Good morning, church. Um, you might be wondering, or perhaps you're wondering, why we're starting a new series in the middle of Ephesians, in the middle of one of Paul's letters. Um, there's a reason for that. Um, for the last year, two years really, we've been living in the book of Romans, and we've been just stewing on and studying Paul's revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we, we've uh, been... Sorry, lost my place. Let me back up. We, we, we're picking up in the middle of Ephesians because having built on the, or having studied the gospel in the book of Romans, we want to build on that now and we want to hear Paul talk to us about how we apply the gospel to our everyday life. It's not that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians have nothing to say to us new about the gospel, but Paul does lay a very similar theological foundation for the gospel in the first three chapters of Romans or of Ephesians that we learned in Romans. So I want to read a few passages to you from the first three chapters of Romans to kind of get us going this morning. So flip back to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. And let's just read a few excerpts to kind of rehearse where, where, what Paul is building on. And I think you're going to hear an echo of Romans when we read this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you hear Romans? Right? Again, it's not that Paul doesn't say anything new about the gospel in these first three chapters, but it's very similar. We hear things in this like Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That's Romans chapter 3 or Romans chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That he's working all things together for good, for our conformity to the image of Christ. We can hear the echo of Paul's theology in Romans. Flip over to chapter 2. Of Ephesians. Verse 1, and you were dead in your in the trespasses and sins. That sounds a lot like Romans chapter 5. In Adam all die because in Adam all sinned, right? Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And then go to verse 8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by what alone? Grace alone through faith alone in who? Jesus Christ alone. That's what we learned in Romans, and Paul is laying that same foundation here. Go to chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We hear the words of Paul in Romans 8, nothing's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Now, if you're like me, we, we read all this incredible, rich, deep gospel truth. We hear what God has done for us in Christ, how he's made us new. He's filled us with his spirit. There's no condemnation. God has resourced us to be his children and to be holy and righteous before him. And maybe you've asked the question like me, well, how does that change my everyday life? How do I apply that Monday through Saturday when we rehearse it on Sunday? That's what this series is about. Because in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6, we're going to spend the next seven weeks all the way up to Easter living in these three chapters, and that we've titled the series Faith in Everyday Life. How does that sound to you? We're going to apply this stuff. We're going to let the Apostle Paul in the Scripture apply this rich, deep gospel truth we've learned to our everyday life. So let's take a look at where Paul starts. Let's go back to Ephesians 4, verse 1, 1 to 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. So he's urging. There's a, a plea, almost like a beg. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy or walk in a manner that is consistent with the the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, everybody say eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Here's where Paul starts. I urge you, I plea with you, I beg you, Walk in a manner worthy. Live in such a way that is consistent with the new life that you now have in Christ. And almost in passing, I don't think it's in passing, but it almost feels that way, he mentions that he's a prisoner for the Lord. He's in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. Why does he do that? Why does he mention that he's a prisoner for the Lord? I, there's two reasons, I think. Here's number one. I think he wants to underscore that Christianity is risky, unpopular, and dangerous. Now, you amen that. How often do you actually think and feel that your faith in Christ is risky, unpopular, and dangerous? I mean, Jesus gave us warnings like this, didn't he? I mean, Jesus made it clear Christianity is safe in the long run but it's dangerous in the short run. 
The elders met for prayer this morning, and I, I told them, I asked them to pray for me. I said, because what I feel a burden about this morning is how do I communicate? How can the Word of God instill in us the kind of urgency that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 when he says, I plead with you. I'm a prisoner, and I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian Christian minister who once said publicly that Christianity and communism are not compatible. And because he said that publicly, the communist regime in Romania imprisoned him and tortured him for about 14 years. After 14 years, he was ransomed for about $10,000, and he quickly immigrated to the United States where he spent the rest of his life raising awareness and support and aid for Christians being persecuted for their faith all over the world. And he told this story, he told a story of a, a man named Tahir Iqbal, who was a Muslim convert to Christianity. He was a paraplegic, he was confined to a wheelchair, and in 1990 he was arrested for his faith, and two years later he was hung. Before he was hung, he was asked, he was questioned, how he felt about the possibility of hanging for his faith. And he said this, he said, I will kiss the rope, but never will I deny my faith. We don't live there, do we? And you can't, measure, you can't manufacture the kind of urgency that Paul is talking about. But here's what I think must happen for us is that by faith and prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit, we need him to awaken in us. We need to wake up and realize that the gospel is not a middle-class way to find solutions to our problems. It's not a way to help us live more comfortably. This is a splash of ice-cold water in the, faith, in the face. I, therefore, a prisoner, Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I think a lot of our lives are spent on trying to just get comfortable. How do we get more comfortable? And this is a, this is a knock upside the head to our lazy, entertainment-addicted, self-pitying Christian culture. I know I'm sounding harsh this morning, but I want to wake us up. I don't want to fly by the fact that Paul is pleading with us urgently. All this gospel that I've taught you, don't treat it like it's a, it's, a, it's a rabbit's foot in your back pocket that you can pull out and rub when life gets hard. It's not what it's about. This is a plea. This is an urgent plea. Here's the, the second reason that I think Paul mentions this. It's to awaken us to the urgency, but also to help us realize that even though Christianity is risky, unpopular, and dangerous, it's worth it. Paul wants us to know, my imprisonment for the Lord is worth it. The gospel is worth it. Jesus is worth it because the call that we've been called to is the call to glory and joy and satisfaction in Christ. And what price tag could we put on that? What level of comfort would we say is worth giving up our hope and faith in Christ, we would say nothing is worth that. And yet, 
We don't live with this kind of urgency. And my prayer this morning is before we get to anything practical that Paul says, I would even challenge all of us in this room to whisper a prayer. Father, Holy Spirit, awaken in me a kind of urgency that gives rise to every practical application we might make to the gospel. So where does he start? He starts with unity. And if you don't get the urgency, when you hear Paul say, okay, here's the gospel. We laid it out. God's blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us. He's predestined us to be holy and blameless. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but thanks be to God, he's made us alive to God in Christ. And this is not of our own doing. We've been saved by grace through faith, and now we're going to apply that. And here's the, here's the first application. Unity. Womp, womp, womp. Man, I thought he was going to tell me how to make more money. I thought he was going to tell me how to squeeze more comfort and luxury out of this life. That's what the American dream wants for us, right? No, Paul says, here's the first step in applying the faith to your everyday life. Be eager, eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Let's let's read it again. Verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's stop and think about what establishes our unity. One Lord, one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father over all. Not two, not three, not four, not 25, one. And just look around. Just look around for a minute. Look at the people around you. Think about our unity. Unity in one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Isn't that powerful? Man, do we get divided over stuff? <laughs> and, and when we lose sight of the urgency of the gospel in Christ's kingdom, That's when we start to get divided over preferences and opinions. That's where division starts to arise over things like power and money and jealousy, comparison. This is where we start to get divided over petty conflicts. Feelings get hurt. And our unity goes out the window over things that at the end of the day are seem so trivial. But if you allow the Scripture... It, it will help you zoom out and, and, and 
turn your attention away from all these subjective things to this one objective gospel reality is that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and the oneness of those things that unites us is not in question. No matter what we do, the unity of the body of Christ is not threatened. It's not weak. It's not fragile. It's not vulnerable. Why? Because God is the decisive creator and sustainer of it. Jesus died to bring Jew and Gentile alike, Jew and Greek, into one body, one fellowship. Jesus is a gatherer, and he even said this. He said, my sheep know my voice because my Father's given them to me, and no one's going to take them out of my hand. We tend to get so individualistic with things like that. But Jesus is going to have his church. He will have his bride. And so here's the question that I have when I think about that. When I know that God is ultimately the creator and sustainer of our unity, I ask the question, well, if God's in charge of that, if God's ultimately responsible for that, Paul, how in the world do I obey the command to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? How in the world do we define, how do we, how do we maintain something that we neither create or define? Is that a fair question? How do we do that? There's a mystery there. There's a mystery there for sure. But here's one of the things that I've talked about this before that's true. Anytime that we see a command from God in Scripture, here's what we know. Commands from God always equal resourced obedience for His people. Anytime God instructs, His ultimate care and responsibility is not delegated, but He does command us to participate with Him in His commitment to maintain and sustain the unity of His people. Let let me say a word about our unity because I think we, we have something going on in the life of our church right now that could, perhaps, challenge our unity. Last week we announced that uh, Keith and Carrie Cothran are about a year from now going to launch out and plant a church in Spartanburg. And we, that was just such a sweet service last week, wasn't it? As we got to celebrate what God is doing in them. But I can tell you this, in one week's time, the D word has already come up. Division. Division. And let me say a couple of quick things about that. I think one of the reasons that the D word has come up is because last week I said that along with Keith and Carrie, part of our effort to support and help this new church get started is going to be that people are going to be sent with them to help this new church get started. And so let me, let me just clarify what I mean by that. When we talk about people being sent with Keith and Carrie to help plant this church, we're not talking about sending church attenders. The last thing Keith and Carrie need is people to come and sit in a seat. For one thing, there's no seats yet. 
For another thing, when we talk about people being sent with them, we're talking about people going with them as church planters, as fellow church planters. We're talking about people thinking like missionaries. We're talking about people setting aside, for the most part, every extracurricular activity in their life in order to focus on the mission of getting the Grove in Spartanburg started. We're talking about church planters going with them, and that's the kind of people that I think God's going to raise up in this church to help, in this church, to help that church get started. So if we think well and we think biblically about this kind of transition, division is not even going to be an issue. Here's the other thing, is that when things like this occur in the body of Christ and many others in a local church like this one, we need to learn to set aside fear and celebrate what Jesus is doing. So what did we talk about last week? Jesus gathers, the people of God scatter, and then people are sent. It's what we looked at last week when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch and they were praying and worshiping and fasting. And then the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I've called them to. And they laid their hands on them and sent those two men out. And the greatest missionary enterprise ever got started right there. We need to celebrate what God is doing, not be afraid of it. But because the church, listen, because the church historically on many occasions... We've lost sight of the urgency. We've allowed petty things and small things and preferences and opinions and limited perspectives to cause division among us. When Jesus starts to do something new like this, people tend to get afraid and they're like, I don't know how to deal with this. Division does not have to happen. And here's what I can tell you, and Keith and I talked about this this week. It's not going to happen at Res. I thought I'd get a better amen than that. but So how do we participate with God in maintaining unity in the bond of peace? How do we do that? Verse 1 and 2 again. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love. Just say these words after me. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Let's not mistake humility for wishy-washiness when it comes to the truth. Paul's not talking about that the way we maintain unity and the bond of peace is that we get wishy-washy and uncertain about what's true. When he talks about endurance or forbearance, he's not talking about us maintaining unity by being passive and sweeping things under the rug and avoiding confrontation at all costs. Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a humility that is forged by the gospel that says this, I'm not the center of the universe, God is. I'm not king, God is king. I I have had, just over the last several weeks, maybe the last few months, the Lord's just been continually bringing to my mind, maybe because of the transition that's happening in our church and 
what we're doing and, and the, the needs that we have, staff needs and other needs. The Lord's just been reminding me over and over again, Bradley, you're not an owner, you're a steward. I'm a custodian. You are a custodian. We are fellow custodians and stewards of this local church. And it's not about a building, it's not about programs, it's about us, it's about the people, it's about the children and the students that are gathered right now. We are a body of believers gathered together and our call is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the way we first go about that is we embrace this gospel-forged, Holy Spirit-saturated and guided humility that says, you know what, at the end of the day, it's not about me. And if we embrace that, you know what that gives rise to? Gentleness. We're gentle with one another. And when we embrace what I think Paul is referring to there is the spiritual fruit of patience. We, we hate that word, don't we? Mm, I really hate it on Highway 290 and Wade Hampton. But this spiritual fruit of patience that when it's operating at us, it gives rise to enduring with one another. Patient endurance with each other's limitations and weaknesses. See how practical that is? How practical is that? Gospel-forged humility that gives rise to gentleness. Spiritual fruit of patience that gives rise to enduring with one another. Now, that raises another question to me. Paul... If, if that's the way we go about maintaining, eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, how in the world do we do that without compromising truth? Because you know, you know, when we hear the word eager, eager, one of the things that I think is often coupled with eagerness for us is insecurity. When I'm eager for something, typically speaking, whatever that is, there's some level of insecurity that is accompanying my eagerness. Can I do it? Should I do it? Will it happen? And when you have eagerness coupled with insecurity, especially when it comes to unity in the body of Christ, you know what could often be compromised is the truth. We get into passivism. We don't want to call out sin. We don't want to deal with truth. We don't want to have hard conversations. We want to avoid conflict at all costs, and let's just have this surface-level, glasshouse kind of unity that really, if just, uh, you know how they used to talk about storms coming up in, in the south, it's coming up a cloud. Just a little cloud comes up, and all of a sudden, our unity shatters. That's not what Paul's talking about, Okay. Paul is now about to give us how God resources us to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Look at verse 7. Be eager to do it, humble, gentle, patient, endurance. Here's how God's going to help us with that. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So here's the first resource God gives. Every individual in the body of Christ is graced by Christ with a gift for the ministry to the body. You're not an accident in the body of Christ. It's really true. And sometimes the church doesn't do really well promoting that, uh, celebrating that, encouraging that. But this is what's true, is that every member of the body of Christ is resourced by Jesus with grace for the building up of the church. The provision of grace given to us by Jesus, when you received grace, it was, it was given because Christ gave it in a measure suited for his good purposes for you and the body. And it's not a weak provision. In verses 8 through 10, he quotes from Psalm 68 that gives us the picture of Jesus like this triumphant general who has gone out and defeated all his enemies and come back with wagons full of booty ready to distribute to his troops. That's what Jesus has done in the body. But we're still, we have this question, right? If Christ has gifted me for ministry to the body, is that enough? Is there more? Let's keep reading. Verse 11, here's what this distribution looks like. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all maintain, attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." So the distribution of grace by Christ for the church includes what you might call leadership or equipping type gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, all right? Why does Jesus give those kind of leadership gifts to the church? It's to equip all the saints, and that word equip means, could also be translated perfect, it's a word that pictures to make up for what's lacking or to fix what's broken. How many of you know we're not perfect? I'm not perfect either. I'm not perfect in the exercising of my gift as a pastor, teacher, shepherd. I told you just a couple of weeks ago, I'm not a perfect interpreter of Scripture. So there's a humility that accompanies what I do in the church, what Keith and the other elders do in the church, but the purpose of those gifts is to equip you, to perfect you, to make up what's lacking in you, to fix what's broken in you, so that your gift can serve to help us all maintain the unity and the bond of peace. That's what it's for. They're equipping gifts for the work of ministry. And why is that essential? How does that, here's a better question, how does that keep us from compromising truth in our efforts to maintain unity and the bond of peace. He says it. So that we're not tossed by every wind of doctrine and deceit. The gifts in the body of Christ serve in such a way 
as to root us like a giant old oak tree in a windstorm, and we're just not moved. We're equipped for the work of ministry. And what's the work of ministry? The building up of the body of Christ, the unity of the faith in the Spirit, so that the church looks like a mature man, not a little child. Isn't that what he says? To equip the saints for the work of ministry until we reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. What should be clear to us is that the church needs you and you need the church. There's no room in the body of Christ for people who say, I don't need pastors. I don't need Christian community. I don't need accountability. And neither is there room in the church for the church to dumb down the essential, the essential contribution of every individual uh, believer and member to our effort to maintain unity in the bond of peace. We need each other. There's something really sweet, isn't there? I, I, t- I tell couples this all the time when I do like marriage counseling or premarital counseling, particularly for the men, because men struggle with vulnerability. I see a lot of ladies nodding. We struggle with that, guys, don't we? But I'm going to tell you this, there's something... There's a, there's a level of intimacy and depth that you can have in your marriage that only comes, men, on the other side of you willing to get vulnerable and realize, I need my wife. I need her wisdom. I need the gifts that Jesus has put in her. I need the spiritual gifts that she has and the ways in which the Spirit works through her to hold my feet to the truth. Man, if you think being the spiritual leader, this is not in my notes, by the way, so this is free. Man, if you think being the spiritual leader of your household means that you are independent from the way Jesus uses your wife in the household, you've missed the point of spiritual leadership. In the same way that the elders in the church are accountable and need the body, so too does a husband need his wife right? And a wife needs her husband, and we need each other. And if we can, again, humble, gentle, patient, endurance, spirit-led, depending on the gifts in the body of Christ so that we, the body builds itself up in love, and the leadership gifts of the church that teach the Word of God and hold us accountable, that's where we're going to We're going to make our best efforts to participate with Jesus in maintaining the unity of his church. Amen? This is God's provision to us. And when we lean into that, grace gifts for the whole body, leadership gifts that lead the church, so we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, look at what happens. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Instead of being tossed to and fro, instead of our unity being based on 
passivism or wishy-washiness or avoiding conflict of all, at all cost. Look what happens. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is it, which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That verse gets quoted a lot, doesn't it? Speak the truth in love. I, I am um, about to turn 43, and I recently had to purchase my first pair of reading glasses. I haven't brought them to the pulpit yet, but it's coming, just forewarning. I'm trying to hold it off as long as I can. I was sitting on the couch the other day, and I was reading, and I had my reading glasses on, and the TV was on. And so <laughs> I had them pulled down on my nose <laughs> so that i reading, and if I happened to want to see what's going on the TV, I could just look up, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of the young people are like, I don't understand that. You, you folks that know, have reading glasses, you know, right? So I'm there with them down on my nose. I'm sitting on the couch looking up, reading. And Thomas looks at me, and he goes, Daddy, no offense. <laughs> That's the way he starts things, because he thinks if he says that, then it's not going to be offensive. Like, it takes all the offense out of it. Daddy, no offense, but you look like an old man. <laughs> and then he puts the exclamation point on it just to assure himself that he's not offended me. He goes, just saying. Just saying. That's how we often think about speaking the truth in love. We just say hard things to people, you know, like you got a booger in your nose or your breath smells bad. Or we, that, do you see the context? This is not about just saying things that might be offensive because they, from our perspective, are true. This is, when Paul talks about speaking the truth in love, he's talking about gospel truth. He's talking about when we speak to one another, when there's a marriage that's fallen apart because one or more husband or wife has lost sight of the gospel and they've just gotten their eyes on themselves, that in a small group setting, we speak the truth. Why? Because we're eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about that we, as humble, gentle, patient, enduring people who are equipped, we are made fighting fit so that we all work properly. Here's the first aspect of what that looks like. We speak truth to one another in love, when we find a sister or brother who's in despair because life's gotten hard, maybe tragically hard, that's when, in, again, in an effort to maintain unity in the bond of peace. You know what? I see, people, I see this happen all the time over 15 years here at this church, 20 years in local church ministry. When circumstances get hard, 
Sometimes people get disillusioned and they walk away from the church. And historically, I'm not just talking about res, I'm talking about the church capital C, either because of fear or because we've lost sight of the urgency. We're afraid to speak the truth in love in those situations. We're afraid to fulfill the calling to be eager to maintain unity and the bond of peace. Because what's required is to speak the truth, not throw it at somebody like a dagger or a spear. He's not talking about judgmentalism. We're not, we're not ignoring planks in order to point out specks here. What he's talking about is he's saying, I love you enough. You love me enough that when life gets hard or when the enemy or when circumstances or when our perspectives and preferences and personal opinions and jealousies and comparisons start to try to creep in, sin starts to creep in and try to splinter our unity, we jump on that, we pounce on that. Again, humble, gentle, patient, enduring, but speaking the truth in love as we are equipped to work properly. I heard a pastor say this years ago, and I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten it. He said that the church is the hope of the world when it's working right. But you know this like I do, right? Is that in a lot of cases in my lifetime and yours, we've seen the church not work right. Here's, here's a prayer for us, maybe. Here's a, here's a starting point for us. All this gospel that we've learned and now we want to apply it. Let's pray and let's ask Jesus to grace Res Church so that we work right. So that we work properly. So that we are eager to maintain unity and the bond of peace. I met with all the folks that are in life groups Friday night. And I told them, I said, you know, one of the things I've been stewing on lately is how the Bible talks about a love that we're to have for one another that is so radical, so otherworldly, that the world does take notice. And it's not, listen... It's not a homogenous kind of love. There's not a homogenous kind of love that we share with each other and also share with the world. Jesus said, by, all, by this will all men know you are my disciples when you love one another. Our defining mark, listen, it's not how we love the world. Is that important? We love our neighbor. But what defines us, what, let me just read it. Again, not in my notes. 1 John chapter 3. Praise team, you can come on. First John chapter 3, verse 11.
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love who? One another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Does that just like slap you in the face? You know, the Bible says, be wary when all men speak well of you. Was it John Wesley that, I think it was John Wesley that was, he was an itinerant minister riding his horse from town to town to go preach. And I think he had gone a whole day with nobody persecuting him. And he got off his horse and bowed down his, on his knees and he said, Lord, what's wrong? Have I sinned against you? And then somebody threw a rock and hit him on the back of the head. And he's like, oh, I'm all right. <laughs> True story. Don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when they put you in prison. Again, I know that's foreign. That feels distant. I tell you about Wormbrand and the Muslim Christian that, that converted to Christianity. And it's like that feels like a million miles away for a lot of us. But yet... Christianity, when, when the gospel is lived out, when the people of God start to work properly, there will be resistance. We will stand out, and in some ways we will experience the hatred of the world because Jesus said the world loves the darkness and hates the light. Right? We're not called to hate the world. There is something for, for us to ponder there when it says, you know, don't be surprised that the world hates you. But then watch this, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Think, think, think about the theology that Paul laid down in Ephesians. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but thanks be to God, he's made us alive to God in Christ and he seated us with him in heavenly places. That sounds awesome, Paul. How do I know for sure that's happened to me? Here's one of the evidences that scripture gives us. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Not the world. Listen, the world can do good deeds. The world can do good deeds. The world, a, a, a people that aren't Christians in America can take their wealth and feed a hungry person. You don't need the spirit or the gospel to do that. But do you know what you need the spirit's help with? You know what? You need the gospel to lay a foundation for so that you can live out this faith in your everyday life so that you can love your brothers and your sisters the way this book calls us to do it. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Speaking the truth to, in love to one another. Not just trying to say hard things and add at the end. Just saying We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not 
who does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderers, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We lay down our lives for one another. That's the church working right. Right? That's what it means. And I tell you what, if we could cast a vision for 2020 and beyond, if we could cast a vision to take this gospel and apply it to our everyday life, there's a lot of ways in which the gospel that transforms us, informs us. Let's let this first one settle into our spirits today. We are called to be a unified body. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father who is God over all and in all. Amen? Stand with me. Lord, we want to pause right now and thank you for your love. Your love for us that called us out of darkness and into light. Your love that called us out of death and into life. And here we are, your people gathered in one name, with one focus, one heart, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all share in that. We might come from different backgrounds. We might have different preferences, might have different thoughts and ideas of what the church is and what it should be. But Lord, I ask that you would just, you would just plant these roots so deep. You've called us to be a unified body. You've called us to be a people who emanate the light of God. Emanate the life of God by the way we love one another. Lead us in that, I pray, as we rehearse in song your love for us and what you have done for all of us that brings us together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's sing. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.